Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy BespokeCast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. Welcome to BespokeCast. We are thrilled today to have our first guest who is deeply focused on short selling this week. Mark Cajotes is joining us from his home outside of San Francisco, California. Uh, we're thrilled to have him. He's a really interesting guy and has had a, a lot of sort of headline successes on some interesting names in, in recent years. And he's got a, a pretty interesting backstory too. So we're going to talk to him about short selling and about how he approaches the markets. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to BespokeCast. Well, thanks for having me, George. A little bit of background on who you are and where you come from and how you look at the world is usually how we start with guests. So uh, where are you from originally? I'm from Chicago, Illinois, originally. That's where I'm from. And it's so and you, it's a, you're, you're used to harsh winters that you don't get to see anymore. I was going to say it's a great place to visit, but I'm glad I don't live there anymore. And there's two seasons in Chicago, hot and cold. So I, I don't I don't. <laughs> I don't, I don't miss that anymore. I recently moved to North Carolina from New York City, and it, I feel the exact same way. It's it's not quite the gradient that you would see from from uh, Chicago to, to uh, California, but similar, and we're on the same page there. So you're from Chicago. Uh, where'd you go to school? Uh, in high school, I went to school at a place called the Latin School of Chicago. I never did really well in school. I think I graduated in the fourth, fifth of my class, and that's from the bottom. And I went to college at a place called Babson College, which is a really good school now, and I probably couldn't get into it uh, with my grades and SAT scores uh, now. But at the time I applied, they needed people from the Midwest, and I fit the bill and was never big into school. And I always say, never let your schooling get in the way of your education. So I graduated with an undergraduate degree in finance. Uh, I got my first job out of school was at the Northern Trust in Chicago in 1982. And I think I was the first investment guy they ever hired out of undergrad. And I got a CFA, I think, in 1985. Which so if they were if they weren't hiring finance type people out of undergrad, what sort of folks were they hiring? Was it was it folks that came up through the business in a different way that you mostly worked with at that time, or was it what did that look like? Well, the crazy thing was at the time the market was terrible, and I mean stocks were not the place to be. And I worked part-time for a broker at Merrill Lynch when I was in college. And I can remember vividly applying to T. Rowe Price out of school, and they actually flew me down uh, to interview there. And I interviewed with Abby Joseph Cohn, who's now at Goldman, but she was the director of research at T. Rowe. So I can remember interviewing with her when she was a whole lot younger. Um, when she was pre, pre, pre Goldman and T Rowe said, thanks, but no thanks. But I ended up getting a job with the Northern trust in 1982. And I think they paid me $17,000 a year. And, and the Northern was an interesting place to work. And they used to get down on me because I was too bullish. And this is when the market was in the soup. So, so, <laughs> so I used to, actually be decent at finding longs but uh i don't know life life has a way of spinning you around yeah and, and of course just the context there you know we always like to mention uh, we've had a few guests that got into the industry at a similar time and it, it's hard to understate how different the world was then not just in terms of how the market operated the technology that sort of thing the type of people that are engaged in the market but also the fact that you know real interest rates were in the you know high t or in the mid-teens you had um 
you know, this massive pent up demographic demand from the baby boom generation entering the economy. Um, you were coming out of the 1970s, which had a very different approach towards regulation and very different approach towards a number of different things. And, you know, you contrast that to now, it just, the world looks completely different. Oh, right? it's, so, it's, 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 it's not, it's not even the same, but of one of the few things I bring to the party is I have a, a decent memory and I can remember, I never forget things. And some of the stuff that used to go on back then versus today is just, just truly staggering. So, and by, by some of the stuff, what, what do you mean exactly? Well, again, back in 82, when the market before it all took off, <clears throat> I love this company called Archer Daniels Midland which, you know, everyone knows who they are today. But back then they were in grain merchandising and they were a factor in high fructose corn syrup. And this is when sugar was in soda. And, and this is before fructose was used in any, in really in food. And the, my thought was if they ever put high fructose 55 in jam, jelly, uh, soft drinks or things like that, it would be a huge market. And subsequently, it's now in everything. And I think adjusted for splits, I think I looked at one of my old portfolios the other day. I think adjusted for splits, the stock back then was 32 cents, and God knows where it is today. But But the decision tree was so simple. It was simply, is fructose going to be put in soda and soft drinks and jams and jellies or not. And if it was, it was going to be a grand slam. And if it wasn't, it was going to be what you see is what you get. And that's where I met one of my heroes and mentors in life, Al Jackson, who was the food analyst at, at the time it was first Boston. And he sort of took me under his wing and showed me the ropes. And he was a big fan of Archer Daniels. And and life was so much simpler. It was so easy to make money back then. It was like scary. It was it was almost like shooting fish in a barrel. And then, so is and then, is that an investment approach you've you've sort of carried forward? And now, obviously, you look at things mostly from the short side as opposed to picking out longs. But is that an approach you carried forward in terms of trying to keep things as simple as possible? Is that is that something that's important to your overall approach? Exactly. You know, I'm not a Harvard guy. I'm not a Yale guy. I'm not a Stanford guy. I always say that if you can't explain your investment thesis or why you own or short a stock to a 10th grader in a paragraph or less, you probably shouldn't be involved. Convoluted stories to me are loser stories. And I try to keep things simple and I try to find numerous ways I can win. The more ways I can win, uh, the better off or the better uh, I like my odds. I don't, I don't, I'm not into these, is the drug going to get approved or not approved? That's not my kind of bag. And I'm not into these convoluted, open-ended, can't explain a story to a simple person. So I, I like to use the analogy, I'm not into climbing the tree to knock the jaguar out of the tree. I'm interested in someone a lot smarter than me shooting the jaguar out of the tree. Then I'll take the knife out of my belt and carve the thing up once it's on the ground. So that's <laughs> that's 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 how I try to roll. You had that success with Archer's Daniel Midland in the early 1980s. Um, where did your career go from there um, in terms of picking longs versus moving more towards the short side, um, were you still at Northern Trust in Chicago? Yeah, well, yeah, I was at the Northern Trust in Chicago, and I mean, I was long Coca-Cola as a yield stock, and the bank gave me a hard time on that. I got long Walt Disney after Irwin Jacobs green mailed me. I think the stock, the time was, I don't, I mean, I, I mean the stock must be up seventy or eighty times since. Uh, after Irwin Greenmailed them, and I'm friends with Irwin now. And then a fellow named Paul Landini, another guy took me under his wing, and video games were just coming out. 
and he thought that the coin-op pinball machine business would get in trouble. So at nights, I was single back then, we used to go to arcades and we used to cozy up with the guy who ran arcades and we used to count coin drops on pinball machines and, and things like that. And coin drop was the amount of coins going into the machine and progressively week by week, it was going lower and lower and lower. And we decided to short Bally Manufacturing, which was the pure play and pinball machines. And I think we shorted it at about 26 and we covered it at four. So that was my first uh, real foray into short selling. And I think that was kind of circa 83, 84. And I said, this is nothing but fun. And so that that was the story. You know, it's not like the the pinball stock was something that you know, there was a fraud or there was something complicated going on. It was just, you know, consumers are going to move in a different direction. There's a better alternative out there. And this company isn't, isn't set up to handle that well. Exactly. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to say coin the term, but I always look for something called, uh, frauds, fads, and failures. And Bally was simply a failure. I mean, just a, just a business model that would go away. You know, later in life, I can remember shorting, payphone franchisees, you know, things like that, which no longer are in business. Is that something that you see more of or less of these days? Do you, do you see more of, you know, you said frauds, fads, and failures, frauds and fads we can talk about later, I guess, but it it seems to me that, um, the failure side of things is this argument that the U S economy has gotten a lot less dynamic. There's, there's less firm creation, there's less um, firm death, there is sort of more concentration of big industries that have ways of protecting their existence, um, for better or for worse. Do you do you see that in terms of the pervasiveness of the of the failure narrative um, that you use when sort of starting to look for stuff to be short? You know, that's, that's really a good question. The the rule of thumb, generally, I go with is, if this company went out of business tomorrow, who would miss them, right? Who would miss them? If, if Signet, which is K Jewelers, Zales, Sterling, if they went out of business tomorrow with their usury finance and ripping people off for this crap jewelry, who would miss them? My answer would be no one or very few. If HomeCap, which is this mortgage fraud operator in Canada, which originated their own words, a billion nine of fraudulently originated mortgages. If they went out of business tomorrow, would anyone miss them? No, no one would miss them. Same thing with Concordia, gouging people with generic drugs. Companies that don't bring anything to the party tends to be my my bailiwick. I mean, I've never been short Netflix. I've never been short Amazon. I've never been short Google, Microsoft, anything like that. I could care less about valuation. I'm not sure Tesla. I could care less about Tesla. There's no part of that story from the short side that intrigues me. That that's funny because most of the guys who are biased towards the short side that I talk to or that I you know see say stuff would would not agree with you on that side on Tesla. And I mean I don't know what the right answer is, but it, it's interesting. Everyone's entitled to their opinion, and there's people far smarter than me. But Tesla is not in my bailiwick. I could I could care less. I think I said in the Bloomberg article that Tom Redman wrote in February about me, I said, legitimate companies don't know who the hell I am. Uh, the guys who know who I am are companies who are trying to pull a fast one on people. And 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 Tesla to me falls under the too hard, too difficult to analyze not worth my time. I've never been short Starbucks. I've been short, this can't be yogurt. I've been short old country buffets. I've been short Fuddruckers. I've been short all sorts of restaurant failures that are no longer around. I've been short Lieberman and Handelman. People say, what are they? Well, they used to rack job, get this, records in CDs for Kmart, Sears, and Walmart. When those companies in those stores 
actually used to have a record and CD department. And, and again, that's a complete failure and something that went by the boards as music became uh, onlineable or the way that business was done changed. It's really interesting hearing you, hearing you go through that sort of list and go through this approach to, to looking at failures because it, it requires you to put yourself in the mindset of what is valuable as opposed to the sort of tradition. The way I think most people would think about dedicated short sellers or people who focus on shorts is, you know, trying to argue something isn't valuable. But what you're saying is that you really need to know what's valuable. That's how that's how you can determine whether something is not sustainable or not worth being exposed to because, you know, there are tons of companies that may look that way, but that actually do have a lot of value to enough people that they can keep going for much longer and much further than anyone would have thought possible. Netflix and Tesla are probably, maybe Amazon as well, are probably the best examples of that. But um, so so being a good short seller then sort of in, in your process requires being good at identifying what people like as opposed to what people don't like. Well, uh, again, the... the uh between six and 16 people who are still left doing this, everyone has their own way. But the way uh, I'm comfortable with things and what gives me conviction, I mean, to me, if you don't have conviction, you might as well not do this. And if you're not genetically flawed, you probably shouldn't do this. And if you don't have a high pain threshold, you shouldn't do this. If you don't have thick skin, you shouldn't do this. And if you're not just a tough motherfucker, you shouldn't do this either. So when you take all that stuff and you add it together and then you see what makes a certain person tick, you have to do things that you're comfortable with. And at the end of the day, you have to have tremendous confidence in your ability to think and your ability to research. And you have to think that you're better at it than the people shooting against you. Because at the end of the day, to me, it's competition. And I think in the names I'm involved in, I think I'm dead right. And I think the people on the other side are dead wrong. And and I'm not right all the time. And I know I'm going to make mistakes. But it's not because I haven't tried. And it's not because I haven't out-researched, out-hustled, and outworked people on the other side. And if I'm wrong and my story changes, I better get the fuck out because I'm going to get buried if I don't. So you, you have to be stubborn, but you have to be flexible. You have to have confidence in your conviction, but you have to have sense that if you're wrong, you better go. And you have to have courage because if people try to bully and threaten you, you have to be able to knock their teeth out and hit them in the head with a crowbar, which I have the ability to do. And I'm not, I'm not interested in being threatened. I'm not interested in being pushed around. And when people threaten or try to push me around, I bow my back and I fight a little harder. So it's a, it's a whole lot of things that have to come into it to make it work. And, you know, I'm an old man at age 56, but I still enjoy it. I still have fun at it and I try to make a difference. So that's what I do. One of the themes in that uh, sort of overview you just gave is the idea that you have to be very convicted, that you have to have a high t high pain tolerance. Shorting, deservedly so, gets a reputation of being very challenging from a risk management perspective because, frankly, stocks generally go up over time. It's hard to pick out the ones that are going to have the big drops that are required to make shorting work um, profitably. And uh, that's a challenge. So the other thing is conviction, something you mentioned is, you know, that suggests a lot of concentration. So you've got, A, it's hard to pick a, a good short to begin with. Um, B, it's hard to see that go up 20% in your face. Um, so how do you think about risk management in terms of your portfolio? How many, how many names are you typically in? How many, um, how, how much of a drawdown are you willing to take on an initial position um, when, you know, holding all else equal that you are really convicted on a, on a short that you think you've got the story nailed, that you've done the work and that you're, you're really confident. Okay. 
You know, that's a really good question. There's a lot of questions in there. So I don't manage a fund anymore. I manage my own money and I manage my son's money. I don't uh, play with my wife's money because she gets so jittery when these things move around. The last thing I need to hear is, you know, what do you think with this or what do you think with that? So I, I am hardest on myself and I don't need really to hear from anyone else on why something's against me. Because the thing with shorting, which is so hard, is the market ratches up. It, you know, it takes the ratchet steps up. It goes up every day or I count on it going up every day. And when you get paid on a short, it tends to be sudden. It tends to be without warning. And when the moves happen, they happen fast. So you can feel dumb 97% of the time, and you do feel dumb 97% of the time, and you get paid on 3% of the time. So you got to sort of enjoy the 3%, and you got to be able to put up with the negative 97%. And most people's minds uh, do not allow that to happen. They get too bummed out or too depressed when things go against them, and they can't think straight. But again, I'm genetically flawed. So I have an ability to endure uh, that kind of suffering. So to complicate that, I tend to take very concentrated bets. Personally, I'm only short anywhere between five and 15 names at any one time. Let's say right now I'm short eight. And I tend to take somewhere between, you know, eight and 28% uh, positions, depending on where I think I am in the story. Sometimes I think things will blow up at any time, uh, and it could happen quick. Uh, sometimes I'm more of in the stalking mode. Sometimes I'm just dead wrong. Sometimes I just want to have a position because if I don't have a position, I'll forget about it. And I always say to myself mentally, I... If I get in a position in the old days, I'd say I plan on it going up between 20 and 50 percent. That wouldn't surprise me nowadays uh, with my own money because I can be faster because I don't have a big fund. uh, I try to time things a little tighter. So I don't know. It's kind of a touchy feely deal. Things go can go against you when things get crazy, but things can you know, at any point in time, I can have four things working, six things not working, eight things working, two things not working, two things working, uh, everything else against me. It, it, it sort of all depends. But I try to be in situations, if I, if I don't think something can go down 60 to 95%, I'm not even going to toy with it. I don't short things. As a trade, I'm not a trader. I'm an investor. I don't think, I think you can be a trader or an investor. I don't know any good traders who are good investors. I don't know any good investors who are investors and not traders. But I'm an investor on the short side that takes big positions that before I get involved, I think I know the company better than the managements of the company know themselves. I tend to enjoy fraud. I tend to find fraud. I think people know in society know who I am, and I get a lot of stuff through my Twitter, which is at Alder Lane Eggs. Um, there's a lot of wrong and wrongdoing in the world, and I sort of enjoy hearing it and exposing people who do it. So that's a complex answer to your question, but. No, I, I think complexity is an entirely valid response to the concept of risk management in general, and especially in the sort of way that you approach the markets. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with having some nuance and some background to it. Well, I mean, the 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 thing the thing about it is in today's hedge fund world, and I completely understand it on all sides. I understand it from an asset allocator side. I understand it from a portfolio side. You know, everyone wants everyone to perform on a daily basis. You can only be long stocks that go up and you're only supposed to be short stocks that go down and and you're not allowed to deviate. And if you have too much of a drawdown, people get upset. 
and and you're constantly questioned, which is why I never want to do it professionally again, amongst other reasons. So I think the the people who are investors in hedge funds need to be more patient with their short managers than they have been in the past, given how the world looks. And when something goes against you, it doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means something's going against you. And a lot of times people trade themselves out of really good positions because, you know, when an allocator comes in and say, what's your risk tolerance? Oh, if it goes against us 20%, we cover this, that, and the other. I don't think you can have rules or things like that in this because every name's different. Every market environment's different. Everything's different. And so to me, you know, risk is in the state of mind and it should be, I'm on a cattle drive. I'm going to get the cows from Omaha to Oklahoma City. And somewhere along the way, I'm going to get some arrows in my ass because the Indians are going to shoot at me. But that's just part of the deal. You know, I may lose 20% before I make 80%, but it's just going to be the way it is. And you can't always account for these aberrant stock moves. And I think uh, it's unfortunate because the markets are so fast and Everyone wants to perform and everyone has these hard rules. But I think in shorting stocks, it's very hard to have these hard and fast rules. So that's just that's just my way of thinking. So so personally, you know, my my pain threshold is extraordinarily high. I think I can take a punch with everybody. But you better be careful when I throw a punch, because if I hit you, I don't think you're getting up. So I can I can take a pounding, and I took a pounding on HomeCap a year ago when they announced their Dutch tender at 25, and they ended up tendering it at 37.50, and now the stock is nine, up from five. And I think it's headed to zero, or worthless, as I would say. Home Capital Group is a Canadian uh, mortgage lender. They are, I think what would be fair to say is non-traditional. It would be great to talk to you a little bit about that particular trade because Canadian housing right now is getting a lot of focus. I tend to approach things more from a top-down macro perspective. You've got the greater Toronto area, you've got home prices up more than 20% year over year. Um, Vancouver and Ontario have both introduced measures to cap home price appreciation somewhat um, effectively. There's a lot of concern about Canadian household debt levels, about Canadian uh, mortgage debt. And here you have Home Capital Group, which uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you talk a little bit about the business model and about what, how you initially found them, but doing stuff that, that does not look like it's productive for anyone except possibly um, folks who are benefiting from that, from that company. So how did you find Home Capital Group and, and could you sort of walk through how you, how you approach that process on that particular short? Surely. So back when, which is let's say 2012, 2013, I don't know the specific time, Steve Eisman, who I know and I think is great, was at a Sewn conference and he pitched Home Cap as a short. And I paid attention to him and I think I think it was somewhere in the mid to high 20s. And I listened to his spiel on it and I thought it was pretty good, but I had my hands full. So I sort of walked what what was the what was the basic short thesis back then? It was basically, you know, Canada's a housing bubble. Uh prices are crazy. These guys have very weak lending standards. They have no reserves. Uh, when the housing comes due, home caps essentially the new century of Canada, which it which it is slash was, and these guys will meet their maker. And you know he put up a bunch of uh, charts and information, and and it was all and it was all correct. But but it was a touch early because the market was going much higher. And, you know, he created a buzz and the stock went down. And I just said, I'll watch this thing because I'm a stalker, right? I mean, I'm an, I'm an admitted stalker. I watch these things. I watch them play out a bit. I wait. I try to wait for a break in the story and the numbers or event before I take a position. 
So I watched this thing and the numbers, the reported numbers at home cap were good and they, they were staying good. So eventually, because shorts tend to be impatient, you know, the, the company, the management created a bit of a squeeze and the stock went into the 30s and 40s and it topped out in the 50s. So I'm watching this thing and it's 54, 55. And they report, I think it was their third quarter, I'll never forget this, and the quarter missed. They missed the numbers. They missed the origination numbers. This is 2015, This is, this is 2014. This is 2014. Oh, okay. Stock's in the mid-50s and they miss. And I'm thinking, you know, this Canadian housing market is hotter than hell. Why are these guys missing originations? And they miss pretty badly. So the stock opens up that day down four, and I short the hell out of it. I think it's 51 or 52, somewhere in there, and I short the hell out of it. And I shorted it because they shouldn't be missing. The stock essentially had almost doubled from the sown presentation. Short interest, I figured, was way down because shorts got killed. And I said, in this environment, they shouldn't be missing. Something's not right. Something isn't right. I didn't know about the mortgage fraud at the time. I knew the CEO, Soloway, ran afoul of the OSC, the Ontario Security Commission, in his prior gig, did some form of insider trading. So under my bet the jockey, not the horse, I thought he was a poor operator, although people thought he was great. So I shorted the stock. And, and so just to, just to contextualize that a little bit, you're at this point, you heard an interesting short presentation. You said, okay, this makes sense. Uh, Canada's got home prices that are too high. These guys are the leading edge of that. Um, you know, it, then they miss a number when they shouldn't have missed a number. But the, the shouldn't have is all about sort of the, the top down side of things. You, you know, you haven't started digging in really deep yet. Is that, is that basically the story so far? That, 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 that is correct. I'm stalking this thing and I'm waiting for someone to shoot the Jaguar out of the tree. The Jaguar shot out of the tree was them missing Q3 of 14 when they shouldn't have. They should have blown the quarter out, but they missed it. That was the change. That was the gotcha. That was the change in rhetoric. They shouldn't have missed. They used whatever excuse they want to come up with, whether the Blue Jays made the playoffs, were more conservative, blah, 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 whatever they used at the time. But that was, in my mind, the go. That was the starting gun of why I got involved. And again, you know, you can't teach this stuff in school. It's something that through experience you learn but to me, to hit the ball far, you have to find your pitch, be patient, and when you get your pitch, you swing hard. And I was waiting and waiting and waiting, and I didn't really care about valuation. I didn't really care it was at 2.6 times book. I didn't care that everyone recommended it. I cared that there was a huge deviation in pattern from beating and making quarters in a strong market to missing a quarter badly on the origination side in a strong market. And in retrospect, it was because internally they discovered mortgage fraud in early 2014. They put through Operation Trillium, which was a remediation slash cover-up effort. When you say mortgage fraud, what was happening exactly? Well, in retrospect, as they announced in July of 2015, you know, a whistleblower to the company uh, claimed in 2014 there that there were fraudulently originated mortgages from the income verification level. So these are people that are that are saying, you know, lend me money and here's the income I make and uh, home capital group saying, OK, great. You make that amount. And yeah, not or, it, or, or right, knowing or, it was wrong. Or worse, and, and I'll get into worse later. I, I didn't know it at the time when I short, first shorted the stock. But in retrospect of what I figured out later and what's come out recently, right, the 
the fraud was detected. The company never announced it. They never came clean. They tried to cover it up. But when, in retrospect, the whistleblower did whatever they did, the company's internal patterns changed and they weren't able to do as many juiced mortgages as they would have before the whistleblower. It showed up in the numbers, but the company doesn't deal from the top of the deck. They never announced it or never came public with it to its holders. They just missed numbers and gave a false narrative of why they missed numbers, which is, which is part of part of their problems today. But as I got into this name, and since I had a position, I'm then more focused on it, the more I dug and the more I think, thought, the more rot I discovered. Mortgage brokers who I found were talking about the Brampton Way, which is basically faking uh, Morgan, mortgage originations, things like that. And then it started to dawn on me that this could be Novastar Revisited, which was something that I was involved in in the States. And, you know, it's been it's been great. It's been a lot of fun. It's been profitable and it's been exciting. And and over time, I've just gotten bigger and bigger in this thing. And sort of the fraud has been exposed through the company and then covered up. And the company to this day has yet to come clean. But now they're in now they're in real deep shit. And I think um I think um uh, they're in they're in significant trouble. So you got short in the high forties. Short in the low fifties, high forties, mid forties, high thirties, low thirties, and mid twenties. So I keep going. I, I just don't stop. I you know, as the story decays and things get worse. I don't really, again, I don't care about valuation and I don't care where the stock is. I will do a lot more lower because to me, once things go bad in a fraud situation, they can go real bad. And, and, and where I learned my lesson on that is back in the day, I was short something called iOmega and iOmega was famous for the zip drive. And most people listening to this won't know what the fuck a zip drive is, but it was like the first portable, movable storage off your PC. I mean, now there's thumb drives, there's CD readable, writables, there's DVDs, there's all sorts of ways to do storage. But iOmega stock essentially went from two to 60 and then 60 to zero. And we got squeezed at the hedge fund big time in iOmega from, let's say, 40 to 60 and made a fortune, a fortune in iOmega and iOmega suppliers when iOmega was 10. And people used to say, why would you want to be short iOmega at 10 down from 60? It, the move's already been made. And what I tried to explain to people was iOmega is going to go out of business. iOmega is a fad and their model's a failure. And from 10 to two or one or zero is a tradable move. If your stock's at $100 and it drops to 10, um, then you know that's a 90% drop. But it, if it goes down another $3, that's another 30%. So it's not, you know, the way percentages work, you, you can enter really late and still get huge percentage. It, exactly. It's a huge, um, again, I say, don't try this at home. I say, don't do this for yourself. It's like, you know, it's like being shot out of a cannon. It takes a mindset. The average person, when a stock goes from 60 to 10 and you say you're shorting it at 10, they think you belong in an insane asylum. And I may belong in an insane asylum, but it's not because I short a stock at 10. Because when you have someone up against the wall and they have no way out shorting at a 10 to go to one, two or zero is a very, very, very good move and a smart play. Is home capital group then, I mean, are, do you think it's going to go all the way down? Do you think it's, it's, yeah, I think, I think, I think the equity is worthless. The problem is you can't borrow any shares. I mean, I think, I think the equity is worthless. I think, I think when you 
I mean, there's there's five. Uh, the smartest mortgage man I've ever known is the late Mike Farrell, and he ran Annaly. And I really looked up to him and admired him. And I think he would be very proud of me. And he is proud of me looking down wherever he is on this home cap. Because he always said there's five things in the money business. Five. One, cost of funds. Two, what you get for those funds, your, your margin on those funds. Three, management. Four, risk. And five, controls. Home capital right now is on a lifeline where they're paying 17.5% for money, right? They're loaning their loans if they're making them. God knows what business they're in right now. If they're making them, they get anywhere between 3 and 7% on their mortgages. So, so a negative 10 to 14 net interest margin or NIM is no way to run a railroad. Management beyond incompetent and gone. Risk, they have no risk measures. The risk department's been torn apart twice over the last three years. In controls, they don't exist and or management overrides them. So in terms of Mike Farrell's five points of light, home capital fails every one of them. So translate that into something like JP Morgan which to me is the best bank out there. JP Morgan, lowest cost of funds, get what they want for their money, business, non-business, best operator, Jamie Dimon out there, risk controls, very strong, business controls, very strong. They get a AAA on every front. That's all the business is. That's all the money business is. And then if you can find fraud identifiers with someone who doesn't score well on those five things, then I think you just sort of do the backstroke. Then I think it's great. Do you think more broadly that there's there are more home capital groups out there in, in the Canadian lending space? Or do you think that the uh, fear around what could happen if Canadian home prices roll over is, is uh, not as systemic? Was, was home capital group the canary in the coal mine or are they an, a relatively isolated incident? You know, George, you asked some really good questions. Mark, I'm, I'm, here to, I'm here to get some good answers and only get those with good questions. And I'm thoroughly enjoying this. I'm also short something called the Equitable Group, Equitable Bank, which is EQB in Canada. Equitable has similar weak control measures as home cap. I think their risk department has their head in the sand. And Equitable actually hired a crew of home cap people that home cap fired in the early mortgage fraud identification days. They've, I've, I've identified people who they've hired. I think they've hired the typhoid Mary of Canadian mortgage fraud, and he still works at Equitable, uh, Rizwan Qureshi. And his crew is at Equitable, and I think Equitable has similar issues as HomeCap. They just haven't been discovered by Equitable yet, and or Equitable has not come clean. So I think Equitable has exposure. You know, I'm not a hater of Canada, contrary to what anyone thinks or believes. I, I kind of have a lot of friends there, and I think it's a great place. I think people could be could be forgiven for, for misunderstanding that, given the fact that we've talked about so far uh, Home Capital Group, Equitable, Valiant, and Concordia, you know, all of that's, four, that's, four that's Canadian companies. Well, well I, 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 I call them the kitten and rainbow crowd, and I think 95% of the Canadians are legitimate, hardworking, really nice people. And the other 5% up there try to rip them off and take advantage of the 95. And it's the 5% of the rascals that I'm coming for and, and will expose. As, as someone that was born and raised in Canada, I can attest that Canadians are, by and large, as lovely as any other group of people in the world. So we're, we are in agreement on that it's, point. It's exa exactly right. But it's the guys who rip people off and try to perpetrate scams is who, is who I'm after. And there's plenty of them. But the, but the thing is, I think the big five Canadian banks are oligopolies. I think they're well run. I'm not short them. I don't plan on shorting them. I think OSFI in general does a good job. I think they've been sleeping at the switch at home cap. I think they've been sleeping. OSFI, sorry, just to, um, just to define that 
acronym for people that may not be familiar is um, a, the Canadian Bank Regulator, correct? Yes, they're the Canadian Bank Recu Regulator. I call them, there's an alphabet soup crowd up there. They got OSFI, who regulates the banks. They got CMHC, which is their version of our Fannie Mae that, that so-called insures some of this stuff. They have FISCO, FSCO, which regulates the brokers. They have the OSC. I call them the Queen Street Cowboys. You know, <laughs> I like the I like the Queen Street Cowboys. That's the uh, Ontario Securities Commission, correct? Exactly. And and you know one of the problems if if they want to make me the king of Canada is they need a national security regulator. They have the Ontario Security Commission. They know me. They have the Alberta Security Commission. They know me. They have provincial regulators, which makes things tough from place to place, and everyone has different standards and. From time to time, you don't know who's in charge. They have the RCMP, which is their version of our FBI. They have IMIT, which is a cross between the OSC and the RCMP. They got JSOT. They have more alphabet soup regulators than I could keep track of. And and the U.S. does have its own uh, alphabet soup, of course, too. You know, just looking at bank regulation, FDIC, OCC, Fed so on and so forth, SEC, CFTC. It's not like we're alone, you know, the Canadians alone, but that really is a quite an impressive list you just rattled off. Yeah, I get that. But the SEC is the SEC. I mean, it would, it's a, it's, it would sort of be, you know, SEC uh, California or SEC New York or SEC Miami. I mean, granted, they have offices in all those places, but it would be like if those offices each had a different set of rules. It would it would be it would be very different. And. But I think, you know, it's it's funny, everyone, you know, prior to home cap, everyone said the OSC is a do nothing operation. They're toothless. They don't care. So now the OSC moves on home cap, which home caps being charged with securities fraud. And then everyone's critical of the OSC for going after a bank. I mean, it's kind of like. What do you guys want? If you break the law, you should get charged and, and you should get done in or people should come after you. And, and the problem is just because you're a bank doesn't make you immune. And if you do bad things, you should pay the price. So, you know, in, in recent times, you know, I've had Valiant up there. I've had Concordia, which decided to sue me because I went on TV accusing the main guy of nonsense. So nonsense is a suable term in Canada, I guess. That stock is now $1.30. He sued me when it was 30. I got involved in the thing at 80. And then we have home cap. And then recently I've I've figured out something called Badger Daylight, which is simple BAD. Uh that that trades on the Toronto, but they're based in Alberta, which I think is I think the more I dig into Badger Daylight, I think that thing is completely made up. What is what is Badger Daylight? Badger Daylight is runs or manufactures or who knows what they actually claim they do. They make Hydrovac trucks. Which I, I'm sorry, is, what is a Hydrovac truck? <laughs> a Hydrovac truck is a truck that weighs about 55,000 pounds fully loaded, and they use pressurized water to dig trenches where – Otherwise, you would use an excavator or this, that, and the other. And the sexy part of the story is if you think there's technology to it, instead of using a backhoe to dig things, you know, where you could either hit a line or a pipe or something like that, you use this pressurized water to dig trenches and things like that. That's kind of the kindergarten explanation. But the website, which is www.turnoutthebadgerdaylight.com, gets into their own numbers, which I think are fiction, and gets into how their numbers don't add, uh, questions I have about the numbers. And basically, I think these guys are putting operating expenses into, on the balance sheet which is a WorldCom-esque way of doing things. This in your framework of fads, frauds, and failures, this would be a fraud and a failure as opposed to a fad. And, 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 and it's also a fad because people think that using Hydrovac is a way of replacing uh, plain old backhoe excavation. 
and I think that uh, anyone can buy a Hydrovac truck. Anyone can do this, and it's getting insourced rather than outsourced. And I think Badger is going to be the next in a line of great uh, Canadian blowups. I think the balance sheet. I think. I think Badger. Badger to me. I think the best baseball player of all time is Ken Griffey Jr. He wasn't on steroids. He could hit for power. He could hit for average. He drove in a lot of runs. He was great at defense. He could run. He's a five or six star player. Every part of the game he could do. Everything I look for in a short Badger Daylight has. How did you come across Badger Daylight? So you found a series of of really impressive failures on the part of companies, and you know we've lifted, listed off of, off a few of them: Home Capital, Equitable, Concordia, Valiant. You're looking at Badger now. What I mean, and these are just the Canadian stories. Forget you know the rest of them. Where do you get these ideas from? Where what first got you to look into Badger and dedicate time? Because you know we all only have 24 hours in a day right? There's a limited amount of bandwidth to get into the details that can sometimes be a make or break on these stories. Um, Valiant, for instance, you know, that was not an obvious, um, you know, sort of outcome looking forward a year from, you know, a year before the stock peaked, right? It was not obvious that that stock was going to collapse. Home Capital, you know, doubled between the the short presentation you originally heard and its eventual peak you know so so presumably you have to dedicate time to sort of understand these stories and so on and so forth where does it how do you how do you narrow that down where do your sort of initial ideas come from but this is the stalking way of my life i mean i wake up at 3 30 because the chickens or the dogs wake me up and i'm a jittery guy and i don't sleep too well and I think, and I can't unplug my brain, and I have a memory, and I work my ass off. I'm tireless. But I do have things bopping around in my head. So on Badger, the largest holder of home cap is this outfit. And and you're going to hear more of me in the future about this out, outfit. It's called Turtle Creek. They manage about $2 billion, and they're the largest holder of home cap. And they brag that they're very management-centric, that they look for these great managements. And if you own 15% of home cap and you're in it because you think they're great managers, something is very flawed in your strategy. So I went through Turtle Creek's holding list, and they own 15% of something called Badger Daylight. So they own some other legitimate outfits. So I go through their holder list. And I say, yeah, this company's okay, this company's okay, this company's okay. And I look at this thing called Badger Daylight. I I sort of look at the financials behind these companies. So I go through Turtle Creek's holdings, and I say, pass, 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 pass. I look at this Badger Daylight, and they make trucks. And, And they've had huge management turnover. They've changed their auditor. The CFO is gone. I can screen all these, I can check out all these things on Bloomberg, changes of management, this, that, and the other. But then when I go and look at the financials and I look at what business they're in, this thing makes no sense to me. It makes no sense that this thing sells it at the time six times book. Uh, It trades at 40 times earnings for this outfit that makes trucks where the numbers don't make sense. And making Hydrovac trucks, anyone can do it. And the more I dig, the more I dig on this thing, the more rot I find. And when I find rot, I keep digging and digging and digging. And it was a process. I've stalked this thing for the better part of a year. And then, again, Badger missed a quarter. They missed two quarters the last quarter. One quarter they missed by a little bit, but they still missed. And the weird part about that was they went marketing in Toronto on a missed quarter. They went marketing March 30th. And they were touting the stock on this March quarter, which when they reported recently, 
they completely missed by a mile and they blew up. And then I'm thinking, what kind of clowns go and hype their stock and market to people knowing full well they're going to miss the quarter? And which is worse, knowing you're going to miss a quarter and lying to people that business is great or not having a clue and missing a quarter? So all of this stuff was kind of in the works, and I was all set to go with this Badger Daylight website because a guy in Canada wrote that I come with fake news, and that motivated my ass to come, you know, instead of just being on Twitter, I'm now going to start coming with websites so people can follow the bouncing ball and follow what I have on these companies. And I figured, you know, what the hell? Game on. But the reason I first came across Badger is I think these guys at Turtle Creek are complete posers. And if you want to put 15%, if you want to go long 15% of home cap, which is a fraud, I want to see what else your process brings you. And because of them, I found Badger. So I, so where, there, I where think, there's smoke, there's more smoke. <laughs> where there's smoke, there's more smoke. And when I find fire, I will throw 55 gallons of kerosene on the fire and I will burn the fucking house down. So now I'm, I'm well into Badger and I'm excited about Badger. And on the website, I have this line, I have this button, you know, this whistleblower button. And it's basically if anyone has a comment, they hit it. And some of the feedback I'm getting on Badger is beyond rich. It is so good, it gives me the shakes. <laughs> so so I'm in an absolute lather on Badger. And before, you know, the reason this podcast was delayed, I had someone check in and I had an hour and a half call with someone from the field. So I think Badger's, I don't know, a $24, $23 stock Canadian. I think this thing can actually trade to a negative number one day. I think it's that bad. So it's turnoutthebadgerdaylight.com, and, and I'm going to keep updating this thing, and I'm very excited about it. I think it's, it's going to be great. But it's because of Turtle Creek, right, that I'm involved in it. And, and uh, it's because of BioVale and the management of BioVale which went on to run Concordia that I got involved in Concordia, which is bet the bad jockey, not the horse. So because I've been doing this like way too long and have a memory, when I see if you used to be a big wig at BioVale and you have BioVale guys running the company, I will bet against you every day of the week because you're a failure. You're a flop. And, and these things make sense. The CFO of Badger, his last gig was a bankrupt uh, oil and gas company out of Alberta. And, and as I say on the website, he's not a CPA and he's not an accountant. And it's exactly who I'd want to be the CFO of someone who I'm short. Again, I'm not short pedigree guys. I'm short bums, chuckleheads, failures, liars. Cheaters, you know, those guys are for me. That's what that's what turns me on. <laughs> well, we'll have to keep an eye on on Badger and and see how that plays out. It's um it's an interesting story and it you know is a great insight into sort of how you think about the market. Before we wrap up, we do a little segment uh, called Trading Rich or Trading Cheap, sort of word association. I'm just gonna throw something out there, and you're gonna tell me if you think it's trading rich or tr trading rich, like it's overvalued or trading cheap, undervalued. But isn't necessarily but not, a stock. But, but I'm, right, I'm not. I'm not making recommendations. No, it's of just... course not. No, these these aren't actually stocks. It's not. It's nothing to do with that actually. So, um, just a little word association. So, uh, you have mentioned uh, on this podcast that there aren't many guys left doing what you do. Do you think short selling as a process is is trading rich or trading cheap? Cheap. I'd buy as much of it as you can if you can find. If you if you find whatever short seller is out there. Uh, the good ones, especially the younger ones, the young up-and-comers, find them and invest heavily with them. You operate a small farm outside of San Francisco. You guys have chickens. You do eggs. Um, what else do you have on the farm? We have some horses. 
we'd sell a horse or two. It's basically a distraction. So people think I'm not in the investment business. I grow, <laughs> I grow fruit. I make jam. Do you, do you think small farms like that, um, are trading rich or trading cheap? Do you, you know, the, the agricultural industry is consolidated at an almost breathtaking scale over the last 30 years. Um, do you think that is going to continue in the future or do you think smaller, um, family owned operations like yours, maybe a little bit bigger? Cause as you say, it's, it's largely aside for you, um, are, are going to come back in a certain sense. I think totally, I think small is trading way too cheap. I think factory farms are a tremendous short or under trading very rich. Okay, so my grandfather was a personal seat license holder for 20 years, I think, 25, maybe 30 years for the Oakland Raiders. So was They're I. off to Las Vegas. Uh, are, are the Raiders as a franchise going to do better in Vegas, or has that been a colossal mistake leaving, leaving the great city of Oakland, California? It's a colossal mistake for the fans of Oakland. It's a colossal mistake for the fans of the Bay Area like myself. It's a huge plus if you own the Raiders. It's a huge plus for people in general because whatever they call the stadium is a complete shithole and is a disgrace. And the Raiders gave Oakland plenty of opportunity to come with a better solution. And Oakland had their head up their ass and they've moved to Vegas and it is what it is. It's part of life in 2017. It's kind of sad. Uh, I, I remember going to A's and uh, Raiders games when I was a kid. My mom's from the East Bay. Um, so, you know, I, I can I can think back to those. And, and it's it's kind of one of those sort of emotional things. I mean, who knows how it'll actually work out. But um, but my granddad, Dave, is looking down and shaking his head at, at the uh, successors of Al Davis. Yeah, it's 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 sad. But, you know, it's 2017. And if you own the Raiders, you're looking out for yourself and you're looking out for your pocketbook and you're looking out what's best for you. And it's best if you own the Raiders to move to Vegas. It's not it's not better for the fans. It's not better, per se, for the league. But, you know, if you own the Raiders, you're entitled to do whatever the hell you want. Last one. San Francisco uh, was surprised to see in the most recent case Schiller home price data from March that San Francisco is actually near the bottom of the country in terms of year-over-year home price growth, which is a big change from recent years when it was up you know, 20% year-over-year fairly consistently for, for quite some time. Do you think the top is in on San Francisco, um, or do you think that the uh, combination of California weather, um, the great culture the city has, and the tech industry are are still going to keep doing what they've been doing for quite some time now? Oh, they're going to keep doing what they're doing, but in terms of real estate, I think a top is in a top. I don't know if the top is in. But, you know, the Bay Area is a great place to work and live, but housing is expensive and that shelter and the taxes here are very high. California is a very difficult place to do business because of workers' comp and things like that. So, you know, California, although a great place to live, and I love my existence here, San Francisco real estate is way too high and should and probably will come down. And that's that, I think. Well, a lot of people my age are probably pretty excited to hear that. I'm uh, I'm in my mid-20s, and, and the idea of paying what one has to pay in some of these big coastal cities is like, no way, man. No way. So maybe not bad news for everybody. Uh, Mark Hodes, thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. And, and like I said, we haven't had a lot of shorts on. So this has been really informative for me, and I think people are going to like it a lot. So much appreciated. Well, thanks for having me, George. And if anyone has anything to say, positive, negative, constructive, this, that, and the other, the Twitter is at Alderlane Eggs. If you have something to say on Badger Daylight, it's turnoutthebadgerdaylight.com. And George, it's been a lot of fun for me, and hopefully we do this again.
Thanks for joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Subscribers to our research receive access to the Bespoke Cast one week before public release, in addition to the wide range of reports, data sets, analysis, and commentary that we send out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2016, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources which Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.